0: So, 1 Corinthians, everybody ready to continue, I guess, our journey here in 1 Corinthians? Tyler did a great job setting us up last week. I'm going to spend a few minutes reviewing uh, some of the things he talked about, because I want to get our hearts and minds kind of in this state of Corinth, of what it was like to be in Corinth and, and um, some of that. So we'll do a little review, and then we'll jump into the text, which is a chapter one, 1, verse 1 through 9. So, back to the maps. You know I love maps. So as Tyler already shared with us, um, Paul established the church in Corinth in his his second journey. And that's this one here on the top. His second missionary journey is when he established the church in Corinth. And then his third missionary journey, which is this line, he actually wrote the letter we're going to be studying when he was in Ephesus in his third missionary journey. So that's a picture of Corinth right over here. And uh, let me just tell you a little bit about that again. Tyler did a good job. I just want to set it up a little bit continue with some some more maps here. But this is a picture of that shaded area that is Greece. And Greece is divided into the northern part and the southern part. And it's connected by this four-mile-long isthmus. It's a hard thing to say. Isthmus, but it's right here. This piece attaches the northern part of Greece, which is all of this, to the southern part of Greece. And you see that Corinth is in the narrow of the isthmus. It's a very narrow part. And this, where you know what they say about real estate? What are the three things you look for in real estate? Location, location, location. So Corinth was located in this place that just made it an incredibly prosperous city. Because any trade from the northern part of Greece... Had to go through Corinth. Any trade from the southern part of Greece had to go through Corinth. And that alone made it very prosperous, because Greece was a very prosperous nation. But in addition, what Tyler talked about, there were ships that were coming from Asia, and they needed to get over to Europe, which is over here. Not on them, you can't see it, but it's past there. And so instead of going around this, which was a very dangerous route, they wanted to go through here. And so what they did. Uh, they actually developed a system of large rollers. These ships would come up to one side of Corinth and they'd put these ships on rollers and roll them across the narrow part of the Isthmus in Corinth into the other bay and then from there they'd go on to to Europe or the other way coming back to Asia. So the point is is that all this stuff going around made Corinth an incredibly wealthy nation because everybody was coming through there and there was lots of trade and, and prosperity there. I mean, to give you an idea how prosperous it was, in the, at that time there was only two major sporting events. How we long for that today. Just two events a year. And, and you had to go there to see it. You couldn't watch it on TV, which was, the we all know, the Olympian event, right? The Olympics, which we still celebrate. But the other one was this Itzminian Games, which were in Corinth. And so these were the two worldwide, it just shows you how, how prosperous they were. They had this, their own worldwide sporting event that competed with the Olympian Games in the day. So, um, as, as also, as uh, Tyler mentioned, uh, Corinth uh, was so prosperous and, and rebellious that they were destroyed by Rome in 146 BC, but then rebuilt by Julius Caesar 100 years later. And it quickly became a very prosperous city again again because location, location, location. But also what Tyler mentioned is an important thing to kind of get in your heads here about Corinth is when it was re-established by Julius Caesar, it was established as a Roman colony. They sent a group of Roman citizens down there to establish it as a colony of Rome. And that, in addition to where it was located, it became this great melting pot. It had Romans, it had Greeks obviously being in Greece. It had Jews. It had all kinds of different people coming in to live within Corinth. You've got to kind of picture that, this big melting pot within, within the, the world at that time. Now, here's a picture. This is a map. If you actually go to Corinth, this is a map when you enter the ruins. This is just a picture of the main part of the city, of what it looked like at the time of Paul. And it had amphitheaters, coliseums, big sporting arenas bathhouses, all this. I mean, it was a a very luxurious, very wealthy city. This is just the center of the city here that they show you on the map. What does Corinth look like today? Like this. It's nothing but ruins. And you go around and you can see where these different buildings were as you look at the map and you can see the foundations and you can see where different things were. This is a pretty cool place that you should all visit someday. This is where the Bema seat was for the governor of Corinth. So I'm taking this picture. So where I'm standing, Paul stood it one day because he was brought before the governor of Corinth. And this is where the, that little sign is where the Bema seat was against that wall in the courtyard. And so Paul would have been standing there facing this governor. Of course, we know from the book that he was dismissed because why? You're all reading ahead in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians with me, right? Because it was, a, it was a religious matter, so the governor dismissed the case as he stood before the governor. But he stood right there, Paul did. That's where the, the Bema seat, it's called, of the governor of Corinth. Just to give you another picture of the prosperity, look at the tombs they made for themselves. A little over the top, carved into the side of the mountain. This is where the tombs are of many of the Corinthians. And so you get a picture of the, the wealth of the city just looking at some of these things. Now outside the city is what's called an Acropolis, and that's just a Greek word which means high city, and every major Greek city had an Acropolis. And what this was, this is a place they would go in times of attack for refuge. They'd all go up. There was enough space on top of this mountain, if you call it that it's about two thousand feet high, about that the whole city could go up there and live for a while while, while people were were invading their city. And so this this is their, their Acropolis and where they went, and if you go up on top of the Acropolis and look down, you get a beautiful visit of the ruins and where Corinth was in the bay, where the ships would be and all that. Okay, all that to say that around the city, what you're gonna find is ruins of temple after temple after temple, because they had countless gods that the Greeks worshipped. And you can see there's still lots of ruins of these incredible temples. Because they had a God for everything. As you know from the book of Acts, Paul came to to the northern part of Greece and he was on Mars Hill and he saw all these different temples built for these gods and he says, then he found the one that was what? The unknown, unnamed God, unknown God. And he says, I know who that is and he used that opportunity to share the gospel with the Greeks. Of course, they're brilliant philosophers which we're going to be talking about in the weeks ahead. Uh, We're not open to hear the gospel for the most part. But you can see they have these incredible, uh, they have these incredible structures built to all their force, false gods. Now the, the greatest temple of Corinth was the temple built to the goddess Aphrodite. Have you heard of her before? The, the goddess of the goddess of love, the goddess of love. And I wouldn't call it the goddess of love, but that's what they did. Of course, the devil is very deceptive. And this temple was so large that it housed 1,000 priestesses, And you know what they were? They were prostitutes. They called them priestess. And then every evening, they were up by... The reason I showed you the Acropolis, a lot of these temples were built up in the hillside by the Acropolis. And every evening, these 1,000 priestess, prostitutes, would come into the town and you can finish the rest of that thought, what they were doing there to raise money for their temple, right? And you can imagine... Corinth, with all its trade, had visitors from all over the world all the time as these ships were waiting to be transferred through and people coming in for trade. And so these prostitutes would come into town every night and uh, uh, apply their trade to the the people there. So here's what I want you to, to picture in your minds right now is Corinth. And Tyler already set this up, but Corinth was an incredibly immoral town, city. About 250,000 residents, many, many visitors coming and going, but they were known for their, for their, their immorality. You know what the only thing I could think of when I was kind of praying through this would be we would call Vegas what? Sin City. That's what the world thought of Corinth. In fact, if you were engaged in a sinful pattern, you know what people would say to you, "You're acting like a Corinthian. That's how they would name you. That's how immoral the people were. It was an incredibly sinful place with every simple practice you can imagine and I had to show you a picture of Mary and I at this to show you two things I want to show you the size of this temple and show you there was a time where Mary and I were actually young <laughs> you get those two things from that picture but look how big the structure is they're massive okay back to the, to the map so you know picture this brothers and sisters I love this scene now I'm kind of setting this up for you so Paul comes into this city, this incredibly sin-filled city. There's drunkenness and prostitution and orgies, all this stuff going on. And you'd think, they're what? They're hopeless. I don't, I, I don't want to evangelize in this place. These people are too far gone. It's scary to be in that kind of a place full of that kind of behavior. Amen. But what did he probably recall? Where did Jesus spend his time? Jesus spent his time with tax collectors, prostitutes, and drunkards. And the religious leaders couldn't understand it. They couldn't stand it. Why aren't you, if you really are the Messiah, you would be with us. But Jesus said, I came here for the sick, not the well. I came for those that know they're in need of a Savior. They see their own sinfulness and depravity and are, are, are ready to repent. God has prepared their heart for that. You people are relying on your self-righteousness. You don't think you need a Savior. So Paul realizes this and he goes, okay, well, this is where God's called me. This doesn't look pretty, but I'm all in. But I love the grace of God. Tyler touched on this too last week. The grace of God. I mean, I just you got to picture Paul. I mean, you got to picture the city, brothers and sisters, full of activity, the big marketplace, everybody's trading, money going on, all this stuff. It's a very busy city. Paul walks into there. There had to be some fear. He's a man like, like all of us are. But what does God do? Who does he run into? Thank you. Deanna's getting a couple of gold stars there. She's getting every question answered. But it's, uh, he ran into Aquila and Priscilla. God says, You know what? I called you, Paul. Don't worry. I got you. He runs into Aquila and Priscilla. And this is such a divine appointment. Of course, as Tyler mentioned, they were, uh, they, they were in Rome, but Rome was beginning to persecute Christians. So they left and they settled down in Corinth. And what do they do for a living? Tent makers. They already had a place for Paul to stay. They're mature Christians in Christ. They're tent makers like Paul. I mean, come on. Oh, that's just a coincidence? No, that's a God incident. Paul goes, okay, God, I see your hand on this thing. You got this all set up. I not only have a place to stay, these people are tent makers. They already know the marketplace. I'm going to join them in their work, and they're going to help me in this ministry. Isn't that awesome? So that's what's going on there. And so Paul uh, begins his ministry. It says in, in in the book, and it says that he began in the synagogue, uh, which normally he didn't have a lot of success. But in this synagogue, he did because we see the head of the synagogue get saved, Crispus, and then you know, as a leader of a synagogue gets saved, surely many other Jews also got saved in that uh, in that evangelistic event of the synagogue. Now we also know that whenever uh, people were being saved, Greeks and Gentiles were being saved, right? And whenever. Salvation increased in one of these cities. What else increased? Persecution. Persecution grew. Whenever God's doing a mighty work in the church, there's always persecution that follows. And here's the two reasons why the persecution was growing in Corinth. One is, just like in Ephesus, as people were being saved, who was being hurt financially? You guys know the book of Ephesus. All the people selling false idols and the false gods and all the people selling alcohol... All these people that ran the orgies, and guess what? The prostitution would start to go down. So all these people that were leading this immoral activity were beginning to get hurt in their pocketbooks. So that was one reason persecution grew. But the second one, we know ourselves. Whenever someone brings a bright light into a dark world, what happens? Darkness doesn't like the light. So these people, without even saying anything, just by refusing to engage in all these activities... People were being convicted of their own sins as you'd pass your friend and they're, they're heading off to an orgy and say, no, I don't do that anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ. I don't engage in that activity. And they were being convicted because God's laws are written on their hearts and they're seeing all this evangelism and lives going on. So the persecution grew against the church. Now, I will say this too, before we jump into the text, you're doing great. We've got nothing else to do tonight, so we might as well just take our time and spend a few hours hearing the word this morning. So the other part of it is I want you to picture this cuz we relate to this so well especially in the oasis is these people that were being saved and we're going to be Tyler and I're going to be preaching on this for the next number of weeks but they they were in new there was no generational believers then right everybody was a new convert there was no christian kids that grew up in Sunday school this was a new work of god so everybody was a new convert and these people have been raised in generation upon generation upon generation of the sinful lifestyle. Are you with me? So great grandpa went to the you know, the temple of Aphrodite. You know, he you know what I mean, and, or he went to the, the orgies or whatever. They, so his all the family had been involved in this lifestyle. They thought that's that's the way you serve God, as you got involved in all these things, and that's how you 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 got God's attention by sacrifices and all kinds of things we're going to be talking about. So as we look at the church of Corinth and we start to see the church backsliding and the reason they backslide because you can picture this, everybody around them, family and friends that are not saved are continually whispering in their ear, come back to your old lifestyle. Your God, your God will be okay with this. You can, you can engage with an Aphrodite priestess. Don't worry about it. Your God's okay with that. Come on with this party with me tonight. It'll be all right. You can handle it. So, all that pressure is coming on these people, and through generation to generation of sin, a lot of them are starting to backslide when Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians. And you know, we know that in the Oasis, do we not, brothers and sisters? And those listening, is that many of us have been delivered from sinful, we've all been delivered from sinful lifestyles. Just what does it look like? We're all born in slavery, right? But the problem is, is that, you know, we tell our brothers and sisters that, that live in uh, neighborhoods that are filled with this sin, they're, they're in themselves, that they shouldn't go back to Corinth. You, you can't go back to that lifestyle. You need to put a stake in the ground and start a new life in this beautiful city of Aurora, right? And by the way, we all know this too, those that have faithfully decided to start a new life have been blessed by God and many of them remain faithful to God because they didn't go back to their old neighborhood, their old friends and their old family. But sadly, many will not take the counsel of this church, the elders of this church, and they've gone back to those lifestyles and many of them have actually physically died. So, so that's we understand this Corinth dilemma, we understand the pressure, we understand the temptation that these people were under. Okay, with that setup. up, Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. And our brother Ed is going to open the word for us this morning. And if you would please stand in reverence for God's word. And I'll need this mic on if I could, Augustine. 1
1: Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, 1 through 9. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in current, to those sanctified Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace to our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God, that was given to you in in Christ Jesus, that in, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. May the blessing be with you. Amen. I appreciate that.
0: By the way, Ed just turned 70 years old. And... As my family can attest, I'm not very good with secrets. And so we were going to have a surprise luncheon for Ed next week. But I asked asked Carrie to call Greg to organize it. And Greg had it on speakerphone, so Ed knows about it already. (laughs) So that's on me. But the reason I bring it up is next week, after Sunday service, we're going to have a luncheon catered over here, some Harner's chicken and stuff, just to celebrate uh, God's faithfulness in Ed's life for these 70 years. And Ed's faithfulness to this church for, I don't know, how many years? How many years? Ten years to the church. So anyway, so praise God for Ed. Praise God for God, too. So here we are in this situation. So let's, I love this. I'm so fired up. I hope I can get through this. Um, Because you don't, again, you're picturing, stay with me here, you're picturing Paul walking to the city and, or he, or I, not now, he, but he, he knows the city because he went through to establish a church, and then he finds out these people are all backsliding. A lot of them are in the church. You got you got someone in incest in the church, and no one's saying anything. They're not handling the Lord's supper anymore well. They're doing all there's disunity. Some are following Paul, some are following Paulo, some are following Peter, and all this stuff's going on. You think the first thing he would do, he would just get in their kitchen about this. He says, "What is wrong with you people?" Is that what he does? What is the first thing he does in his letter? He reminds them of who they are. In love and gentleness, he tells them who they are. They have forgotten who they are in Christ Jesus. That's where he begins. And why is it so important that we're constantly reminded who we are in Christ Jesus? For what he's done for us, amen. So what he's done for us, we're going to talk about that, at So what he's done for us, but who we are now in Christ Jesus the reason it's so important brothers and sisters is because who we know who we believe we are will determine how we live our life if I believe that I'm an alcoholic I will live a life of an alcoholic if I believe I was born a homosexual I will live a life of a homosexual or I'll be battling against that my whole life because down deep I believe that's my identity so, so what you really believe you are will determine how you live out your life. And I shared this with the Bible study. I had an uncle. Uh, he's he raised in the Catholic Church, and he was a religious man, but he was never born again. And he struggled his whole life with alcohol and lost his job. He lost his wife, divorced him, lost his family. We all know the story. He lost everything. And then finally he got to AA, and then he became a, a, that became his new God. AA did. And if you ever talk to him, he says, I am a recovering alcoholic. And I would say, Uncle Bill, you're not a recovering... You can, you can surrender your life to Jesus and be born again and be set free from this. You're white-knuckling it. Now all you do is smoke cigarettes and drink coffee all the time. And you're, and you're talking about your next meeting. Because his identity was still in his past of being an alcoholic. So Paul starts at this place. He says, I get a reminder of who you are in Christ Jesus. That's where I start my letter to you. And we know 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians Corinthians, five, seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in crisis, a new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And let me just say this, this is so important, because this is really one of the major battles of every Christian's life, is our identity. Because the world is constantly trying to tell us who we are. So let's, let's dig into the letter verse by verse here and just see what Paul tells us about who we are as well. So he starts off with this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and her brother Sosthenes. Now Paul begins his letter in court by telling them who he is first. Right? First, who am I? Did they know who Paul was? He's the one that established the church, brothers and sisters. Of course they knew who Paul is. But he wants to remind them of who he is in Christ Jesus. You know, when someone comes to give you counsel, you weigh it based on who they are, don't you? If a guy's been bankrupt ten times and comes tries to give me some financial advice, I'm going to kind of weigh that lightly. Or if a guy's on his third marriage coming to give me marriage advice, I'm going to weigh that lightly. So so Paul has to remind them of who he is before he, he begins to talk to them about who they are. So he's saying what i speak to you i speak by the authority of god i am an apostle of jesus christ by the will of god now to be an apostle some people claim to be apostles today the apostles were a unique dispensation a unique season within the church there are no more apostles they they don't exist you know there was a season of god when you hear about people saying dispensation that just means a season of time of god's working there was a dispensation, a season of time of, of the prophets. Now, who was the last prophet? John the Baptist. He was the last Old Testament prophet. He was the bridge to the next season of God's work, which was Jesus Christ himself. Then after Jesus Christ, he established the season, the dispensation of apostles, capital A Apostles. And they were to their main responsibility was to build on the foundation of the church that Jesus had already established. He's the cornerstone. And there were some unique requirements. To be an apostle, you had to be directly chosen by Jesus. He had to pick you. And so people said, well, why didn't he pick Paul? He picked Paul on the road to Damascus. He had to be directly instructed by Jesus Christ himself. Paul was instructed by Jesus. The third thing is you had to see the risen Lord. These are all things that determine whether you are truly an apostle or not. And the fourth thing was, you were given miraculous powers by God in this season of apostleship within the church. Are you with me? So he says, that's who I am. I'm one of those guys. I'm one of the few apostles of Jesus Christ by the will of God to help establish this church. That's who's speaking to you. And by the way, the apostles were also responsible for speaking the word of God and recording lots of, most of the word of God himself which is what we call the Bible, the New Testament. So that's who he was. He says, I want to make sure you know who I am. And by what authority I speak to you. And I love, he he mentions his dear brother Sosthenes. Now, that's a Greek name. He was probably someone the whole church in Corinth knew. He probably got saved on Paul's second missionary journey. And this guy was so sold out for Christ, he left everything and went with Paul to join him in his missionary work. So he mentions his name. He's probably the secretary recording these things because of Paul. But everybody knew him as somebody that was sold out for Christ. So that's who's with him. You liking this? This is good stuff. A lot of good stuff in here. So then he goes, I love this too. He then tells them, he reminds them of some humbling truths, brothers and sisters. Look at this. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. And why does he say that? He says that because the church in Corinth had gotten pretty prideful. And they thought it was their church. And people were not handling communion right. They were, and they were, the rich were doing having their own feasts at the Lord's Supper. And we're going to see all this stuff. So they'd gotten pretty high and mighty. He goes, let me just tell you something. This is not your church. This is God's church. This oasis is not our church. This is God's church. So he says, let me first remind you, this is, that's not your church that you guys think you're leading. That's God's church. And then he says, let me tell you specifically who I'm speaking to. I'm speaking to those. What does he say next? I'm speaking to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And they're called to be saints. Do you see that? He said, here's the truth, brothers and sisters. Not everybody that goes to church is a Christian. He said, so I'm specifically speaking to you in the church of Corinth that is born again, that are saints. By the way, anybody that's born again is a saint. We don't always live saintly lives, but that doesn't mean it. we're, we're set apart for God. That's what that means. We're saints set apart for God's work and God's calling on our life. So he says, I'm talking to the saints. I'm talking to those that are born again within the church. Whose church? God's church. And then he gives them this reminder. Look what he says next. He says, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And what's he saying here to them? The church is a lot bigger than you think, Corinthians. this church this church is all over right now. I'm in my third missionary journey. God is planting churches all over the known world right now. so don't think your little thing that God's doing in your church is all about you. He's doing this throughout the world. He's planting churches. so I'm speaking not only to you that are born again, but I'm speaking to, to all the Christians that have been born again at that time was spreading rapidly through the world. You good with that? All right. So, first, who am I? An apostle called by the will of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who am I writing to? True believers of the church. And then he says this to them. I love this, his, his love and mercy here. Then he prays a blessing over them. He's still not in their kitchen, but he prays a blessing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love his heart. He prays a blessing over the church, over the believers. Grace to you, may God's undeserved favor be upon you. May you experience the favor of God in your life. And we all know this is that when we experience the grace of God, then we also experience the peace of God. He said, so I'm praying that you would experience the grace of God and the peace of God in your new life in Christ. And now he goes on to lay out three specific truths. This won't take us long to go through these because it's pretty straightforward. But he tells them three different truths about who they are in Christ. One is you've been saved by the grace of God. Secondly, you're being sanctified by the grace of God. And the third is you'll be glorified by the grace of God. That's who they are. That's their identity. So that's what he's going to lay on them as he, as he works through this text. So let's look at first one, saved by the grace of God. He says, I, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was past tense given you in Christ Jesus. Salvation. I love this about Paul too. He's always giving thanks to God for the people that he's saving. Isn't that awesome? Good to see you back, Todd, by the way. I didn't see you there. Good morning. <laughs> so you think, how could I miss somebody in this small group? But I did. So he he's saying, you know, can you see, see this Paul traveling through all these, he's on his third missionary journey, and he's constantly praying thanksgiving to God for the miracle of salvation. He's seeing people being saved from every tribe in, in all these cities, and, and he's, he's overwhelmed. He's just thanking God. He knows it's not him. God is saving all these people and starting all these churches through the world, and he's just using Paul's mouthpiece, and he thanks God for that truth. So, he tells them, I thank God for you. I thank God that he saved you. I thank God that he chose you. I thank God that he adopted you and redeemed you and made you part of the, the family of God. So he's, he's trying to remind them of who they are. And the first thing is, is that they've been saved by grace alone through faith alone. It was the work of God, not the work of man. Let me just say that we we can easily lose our own identity if we don't continually remember that truth. That God saved us. God saved us. God gave us this new life. Then he goes on to the second truth of who they are. They're being sanctified. It says that in every way you were enriched in him, every way you were enriched in him. Do you see that? Every way means every way. So let me ask you this. I have in the Bolton, but how has God enriched your life in every way? If you're a born-again believer, you should be able to clearly identify how He's enriched your life. What I've listened to Bolton, what are five ways God has enriched your life physically? What are five ways God has enriched your life emotionally? What are five ways God has enriched your life relationally? And what are five ways God has enriched your life spiritually? Do you see all the ways God has enriched your life? How about physically? Can we talk about this for a couple minutes? Anybody else here a slave to their flesh before they were born again? Yeah, amen. We're, we're, the flesh cried and we answered, right? But after we are born again, he gave us controls. He gave us the, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. We can say no to things that the flesh cries for, right? We have, we have the power now to say no over our bodies our bodies are also what now temples temples doesn't that give you a different belief system about your body than you had before how about your minds within the body come on brothers and sisters do we have (laughs) the minds were controlled by the world and the ways of the world and the things of the world we were just Weeds blowing in the wind before we were saved. Now all of a sudden we have the ability by the supernatural gift of God to take in the word of God and be transformed into the image of Jesus. I'm just scratching the surface. You should spend some time kind of meditating on all the ways that you've been enriched since you became saved. How about emotionally? Maybe you had an anger problem or you had a problem being anxious or you had a problem whatever, you name it. But then now, since we've been born again, we've been enriched with this emotional stability, the, the ability to, to live in peace and joy. Amen? So we can, you know, we can be, if you are born again 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you kind of forget all the enrichments that you've received from God at the moment of your salvation. So we, So physically, emotionally, intellectually, how about relationally? Well, I'll keep confessing up here, I guess, because, I mean, relationally, life was about me. I didn't know how to love my wife. I didn't know how to love anybody else, and I certainly didn't know how to love my enemies. But now I can do all those things in Christ. Relationally, it changed. And, of course, spiritually, we were what? We were born spiritually dead, and we were born alive and we're continuing to grow. So, so he's telling them you've been enriched in every way since you've been saved by the grace of God. Your lives have changed dramatically. That's who you are now. You're not that old person anymore. He didn't enrich you so you can continue to live in your sinful patterns. He's enriching you so that you can live the new life for Christ Jesus. That's what he's telling these Corinthians. Come on, you're not that old person anymore. You're a new creation. And that's why he's sanctifying you. And then he says this, I love this. He says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Do you see that? Has has the testimony of Christ been confirmed among you? Among us? I pray that every day the testimony of Christ is confirmed in you. As you pray, as you open the word, as you as you see God active in your life, it's undeniable proof that God is real and that he's working in your life and he loves you and he's changing you. Amen? So it's true. But also among you, it's also true that the the testimony of Christ is confirmed among us. Because I can walk in here some Sunday mornings not feeling that confirmed, but I'll run into a brother or sister who God is powerfully working in their life and that is just as good of an encouragement to me as it's in my own life when I see God working in your lives so that's the idea of the body of Christ is the constant testimony of God working in our midst and then he says you're not lacking any spiritual gifts where do you think those came from what do you think those are for why did I give you those gifts do you remember what your motivational gift is from our study on spiritual gifts do you remember even what they are Hopefully you remember what yours is, but there was encouragement, service, teaching, exhortation, mercy. There's eight of them. So leadership was another one, giving. So here you see this church, he says he's given them all the gifts. All these gifts are active in the church of Corinth. They got all these things going on. He goes, why do you think I gave those to you? I gave those to you to empower you to live the new life. And then lastly, he tells them. So he says, who are you? You've been saved by the grace of God. You're not your own anymore. You're a child of God. You're you're part of God's family. You're being sanctified by the grace of God to make you into a stronger new creation in Christ. And third thing is, you will be glorified by the grace of God. He will finish the good work he began in you. Now, when, here's the thing. It's a, when you look at this, it's a past, it's a, it's a present tense, but it's also, it's a current reality. Are you with me on this? Why is that so? Because any promise God makes is real down. You can, it's, it's a reality now for us because God said it's going to happen. Are you with me on that? And I'll show you the verse that he verifies that. So he says that as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, what's he talking about? We sang about it today. The second coming of Christ. As you wait for him to return, he's going to return. He's coming back. As you wait for it, he will sustain you to that time, to the end, to when he returns. So, in other words, as you're living in sin city of Corinth and you're fighting these battles, rest and trust in the fact that Christ is promising you that he will sustain you to the end. Just stay faithful, stay committed, stay obedient to the word, stay, stay faithful to the family of God, and he will finish the work all the way to the end of your life or until he returns. And I love this, that we will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? And we're guiltless because of all the good works we've done, right? No. <laughs> Ralph's pulled my chain up here. Of course, we're not we're not not guilty because of what we've done. We're not guilty because of Christ, what he's done. He's saying Christ did it all. He finished the work on the cross by trusting in what he did. We are declared not guilty in Christ Jesus. Right? Let's not mix up that theology. Are you looking forward to the glorification? Man, especially in these days. Glorified bodies, glorified emotions, glorified minds. Right, how about that? I'm looking forward to it. I'm starting to lose my mind a little bit, my memory. I'm thankful that I'm only using 10% of, we're only using 10% of our capacity of our brains and then we'll start using 100%. The ability to take in the Word of God. I want to learn some foreign languages. I don't know if we'll need to do that up there, but I'm just looking forward to all the things I can learn and study. I've got a mind that can take it in for eternity. I might study Italian for 10,000 years and then I'll, because I'm a slow learner. And then I'll move on to another language. But we may have a heavenly language. I may not need that, but I'm hoping we can do some of those things. So then he says this. He says, God is faithful. So he says, you've you've been saved by grace. You've become children of God. Put that on. That's who you are now. You're not a citizen of the world. You're a citizen of heaven. You've been sanctified by the grace of God, and you're being sanctified, growing up in your faith, and called to be as an ambassador, ministers of reconciliation. And he says, God is promising you'll be glorified. By the grace of God. And what does he say? He says, And God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. God is faithful, which is proven by the sending of his Son. God is faithful, which is proven by his grace and salvation. God is faithful, which is proven by his grace and sanctification. So why would you not trust that God will be faithful in his promise that you will be glorified? You will be glorified. And why does he say all this? To start the letter. Because they're not living the life that they should based on who they are in Christ Jesus. That's why he's saying this. Can I read you just a little parable here? I haven't read this since I taught fifth and sixth grade Sunday school, but I thought it might be good for us. Not that I'm saying you're at that level, but I am. Once they're was a man who found an eagle's egg. Has anybody heard this one? Yeah, anyone's found an eagle egg? And put it in the nest of a prairie chicken. The eaglet hatched with a brood of chicks and grew up with them all his life, the eagle thinking he was a prairie chicken. He did what prairie chickens do. He scratched in the dirt for seeds and insects to eat. He clucked and cackled as he flew in a brief thrashing of his wings and a flurry of feathers no more than a few feet off the ground. After all, that's what prairie chickens do. And what he thought of himself, he said, as he reflected on himself, he says, I came from a hatch day in the coop of all other chickens, and I grew up along with those other chickens. I pecked about the farmyard, scratching for grain. I spent my life within the yard and rarely looked up. As I grew older one day, I lifted up my head and saw a wonderful sight high above the chicken coop. Looking at it, I thought to myself, If only I'd been born an eagle. As he discusses with his friends, this is their counsel. One day in the coop, the eagle was visiting with a friend prairie chicken. The eagle looked up, again saw the eagle soaring overhead. What a beautiful bird, the eagle said to his neighbor. What is it? That's an eagle. The chief of all the birds, the neighbor chuckled, plucked, But don't give it a second thought. You could never be like him. So the eagle did just that, he never gave it another thought and resumed pecking and scratching his way in the coop day after day. What a tragedy. Born to soar into the heavens but conditioned to stay earthbound, he spent his life pecking at stray seeds and chasing insects. Though destined to be among the most awesome of all fowl, he believed his neighbor's counsel and never understood or believed what he could join, that he could join those majestic birds in the sky. Years passed, and the eagle remained in the coop. And I I read that to you because, sadly, after 30 years in ministry, that's where I see most Christians. They're still in the coop. They're not living the life God called them to. They're not soaring like eagles, which they could be. They're not believing who they are in Christ. And they're letting their their own beliefs, their own self-talk, is, well, I'm not ready yet, I'm not educated enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not on and on, I don't know enough of the Bible yet. I, and, and here it is. In, in the circles of most Christians, the people they work with, the people they hang with, don't even know they're Christians. They think they're chickens. And, and God is saying, no, I, I didn't chose you from the pit of hell and save you and adopt you and redeem you and sanctify you, and one day glorify you for you to live like a chicken. And so we, we have the self talk, but we also listen to others in our life that talk like the other chickens do. Well, you'll never be like that. You're not good enough to do that. You'll never be the husband or father you should be. You'll never be the evangelist you should be. You're never going to do anything for Christ. Let me show you one more scripture. You're doing so good here. I just, this kind of sums up the whole sermon which Paul gives in, in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of what? All he's done for you. All he's done for you should be the motivation for us to become, this is the NLT, it's just an easier way of reading this. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find Acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. don't but I'm see, of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Basically stop being a chicken and start being an eagle. Start being the child of God that He wants you to be. Amen. Okay we're going to take communion now and um, here's what i'd like you to do is just take a few minutes and pray about these truths where are you at in this process and um, reflect on that and here's here's the deal i don't care where you are as you self-reflect and self-examine when you come up make it make a stronger more determined commitment to god that you're going to be the christian that god wants you to be